this afternoon, here in this lecture, we're going to talk about constitutional law, one of my favorite topics, and it's very relevant to the themes we've set up so far. Uh, we've heard, uh, I guess, every one of our speakers so far talk about the problems of the oversupply of government services, as I would put it. And, uh, you know, if you were asking Alex, he'd say yes in regards to policing the borders, they're overdoing it. Indiana told us why, because politicians are they're human, and they respond to incentives. They're not especially wicked, but they have got bad incentives. So what can we do to constrain politicians and other, other government actors so they don't give us more government than we want? And constitutions are a great way to do that. I'm going to today talk, uh, talk mostly about uh, the U.S. Constitution. Some of the, here's my pocket constitution, got it from Cato. Um, and many of the points I'm going to make are particular to this constitution. It's the one that um, most of us have the most experience with. And it's a pretty darn good constitution as they go. But uh, some of the points I'll make will apply to constitutions generally. So if you want to go seasteading, for example, and form a new constitution, some of the things I'll say today you'll be able to take to heart and use there. I'm going to talk about writing, reading, and respecting a constitution. So we start out talking about what the founders evidently had in mind when they wrote the constitution and ratified it. And then we'll talk about some theories of interpreting the constitution. One of the things that strikes you pretty quickly when you start reading the constitution is you go, wow, this sounds great. How did we get things so messed up? And that's because it's not been interpreted very well. So we'll talk about some theories of interpretation. And then finally, respecting a constitution, which gets to that big question, should we respect the constitution? And if so, why? Um, so let's start with writing a constitution. Make sure there's no sound here. And um, basically, this uh, constitution, the one the U.S. founders wrote, is designed to constrain government by creating a government of delegated, enumerated, and limited powers. And this is throughout the Constitution. You can see it right at the very beginning here. The whole theory behind the Constitution is that we all have natural rights, which we bring to the table when we form a civil government. Our rights do not come from the government. The government is designed to protect the rights which we have already. Now, it's true in a state of nature, our rights are only imperfectly protected, and that's why we form a civil government. This is social contract theory. It's evidently what the founders had in mind, and you see this in the preamble, the very first thing you see in the Constitution. You open it up, and they talk about we the people, and they talk about why they're forming this Constitution. And there you have it. They say, we're planning to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty. All good things that we hope to achieve by binding together in this civil compact. And that means, these are, the, the, these are sort of the goals of the Constitution, and, and that we're going to give to the government some of the powers that we have. We have powers in a state of nature, imperfectly exercised, but we're going to give some of these to the government. It doesn't create these powers. We give it to the government. So, for example... In a state of nature, you have the power, the right and the power, to dispose of your property as you see fit. If you own an ox, you can use it to farm or pull your wagon, or you can slay it and eat it. And so this is a property right you have, which you can grant to the government. So you can give the government the power to tax your ox, as it were. And um, so these powers are given to the government, but we, we delegate to the government these certain enumerated powers but even the powers we give to the government, say the power of taxation, is limited. They, the government can only go so far in exercising the, the powers which we delegate to it and which we've enumerated. Even then, it's limited. Only the necessary and proper laws are constitutional. And if you remember this, delegated, enumerated, limited, that'll tell you a lot about the proper scope of constitutional government. And here's the mnemonic device I offer to you. DEL, delete. That's what you should think about. With regard to most of the things the federal government does, frankly, <laughs> you should be thinking delete, 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 because it's unconstitutional. They're exceeding their delegated, enumerated, and limited powers. So often, the federal government is kind of a tragedy. It's a great document, the U.S. Constitution, but the way it's been interpreted, these limitations have been gutted. So that's one thing we'll talk about today is, is there a way to interpret the Constitution so it has some teeth and protects our rights again? I think so, yes. We'll talk about that. Let's talk a little bit more about how the Constitution embodies these ideals. And it's all throughout the Constitution, this notion that they're delegated, 
enumerated and limited powers. The very notion that it's a written constitution, you can carry it in your pocket. If you feel really uppity when you're going through security at the airport, you can open it up to the Fourth Amendment and start reading scripture to those people. I can't really recommend that, but you could do that. You can wave this under a politician's nose and say, I'm sorry, it says no law here. What's this you're trying to do? I just read this in the First Amendment. It says Congress shall pass no law, abridging freedom of speech. So the fact that it's written down serves as a constraint on government. In other countries, they don't even, you know, they don't even have their fundamental rights written down. They often talk in England about the unwritten Constitution. And I have to admit, because they have such a deep history of respecting individual rights, that's worked out okay for them. But arguably, they'd have even stronger protections for their liberties had they written down some of the things they claim are their rights. The Constitution also has all these structural restraints. We've mentioned these checks and balances. The president has to sign laws unless, what, they overcome his veto. The Congress can impeach the president. There's checks and balances throughout the federal government. Also, of course, federalism is a very important check on federal power if we take federalism seriously, which, alas, the United States Supreme Court has not in recent years. A lot of people cite the General Welfare Clause, which uh, I just cited to you. It's in the preamble, and it appears later. And, And they cite this, General Welfare. They say, well, this is kind of a carte blanche. It means the feds can do anything that they think will make the world a better place, or at least the United States a better place. And in fact, I would argue that's a limitation on government power. Anybody? How do you get out of this a limitation on government power? How could you use that language to say, well, you can't pass, say, that sugar uh, protection. You know, there's a special protection Deanna told us about to protect the producers of sugar uh, from beets in the United States. Yeah. There you go. That's not protecting the general welfare. It's protecting that particular lobby. If we took this seriously, we would end up looking at the aggregate effect of a lot of things the federal government does, and we'd say, I'm sorry, no, this is a special favor to that particular group, and the rest of us are paying for it at a price of 50 bucks a year. That doesn't meet the specs. These are specifications. You have to satisfy, you haven't done it, lawmakers, unconstitutional. The enumerated powers of Congress. So if you look at Article 1, Section 8, there's all these things Congress can do. It can do a lot of things, conceitedly. There's all kinds of stuff listed in here. I'll just open up to, I'll read you some of these. Um, Got to get to Section 8. Give me a sec here. To provide and maintain a Navy. To make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. To constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. The uh, copyright, provision for copyrights in here, I'll be talking about that in my third and last lecture, and it says here, I'll just read it to you now so we can refer to it later. This is in um, this same section here. It says, Congress, the Congress shall have the power to, dot, 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 because there's a bunch of stuff there, promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So it's the copyright and patent clause. The idea is that Congress can only do those things that are listed here. In fact, this was seen as so great a limitation on uh, government power that some of the founders thought we didn't need a Bill of Rights. Alexander Hamilton, for example, said, you know, Bill of Rights, interesting idea, don't need a Bill of Rights. I mean, you're worried about Congress abridging what, freedom of speech? Well, if you look here, there's nothing here that would empower them to limit speech. So the argument was... If it's not here, you can't do it. There's nothing in that listing of powers which says you can limit speech. So Hamilton's argument was, don't sweat it. Now, Hamilton is not my favorite founder. If you brought him, if you could bring him forward in time with a time machine today and have him run for office, oh my gosh, he'd make, he'd be be right there with Ron Paul. He'd sound awesomely libertarian. But in his day, he was one of the more statist and I dare say kind of sneaky founders. I, don't, I didn't trust his argument on that. I mean, if I would have been around then, I wouldn't have trusted his argument. And he did not prevail, and it's a good thing, because Hamilton was wrong about that. Uh, but at any rate, it, it, at least some people said, we don't even need a Bill of Rights. This is such a powerful limitation on government. It hasn't worked out that way. The Necessary and Proper Clause. So the idea here is, even if Congress is exercising one of its enumerated powers, it can only go so far. It has the power to tax. Does that mean Congress could impose a 100% tax on all private property? Well, no, because that would not be necessary and proper. Now, again, this is not something today, in today's jurisprudence, 
you can cite as a real limitation on federal power. It's just courts have kind of gutted the language of the Constitution. It's a real disjunct. If you sit down and read this, and you can read it, probably take an afternoon. There's not a lot of big words. It's pretty clearly written. The language is almost modern. It's not like English has changed a lot in the last 200-plus years. You sit down and you read it, and you go, wow. I mean, there's not much the government can do, and there's all these protections for my liberties. It's very shocking, and this is one of the things you'd read. Oh, great. They can only do what's necessary and proper. It just hasn't worked out that way. But on paper, man, it looks really good. And then also, there are some express limitations on Congress in Article 2, Section 9. For example, the ex post facto clause. There's a, a, a specific limitation in this part of the Constitution that says, Ex post facto laws are not allowed. An ex post facto law is when you retroactively say, you know, you say that was illegal. Look, we're passing the law now, but if you did that in the past, you're in trouble now. And you say, well, when I did it, there was no law on the books. Well, we decided after the fact it was illegal, so now you're going to jail. That's problematic. And actually, that one, I think they've kind of nibbled at the edges of that. They don't take it as seriously as they should. But still, that one, there's other express limitations in there. My point is not to roll all these out. It's to show that, wow, the founders really cared about limiting government. They did all these different things. And, of course, everybody's favorite. This is probably the first thing you thought of, which is why I put it last, the Bill of Rights. Most people say, you know, you ask them, is government power limited? And they go, yeah, you got the Bill of Rights. And true enough, it's a very powerful limitation on government. It's one which still has some teeth, at least some provisions in the Bill of Rights. But it's not the first thing. In fact, this came about after the ratifying generation saw all this other stuff, and they said, it's still not enough. We still want more protection. So we got the Bill of Rights. I've got to say, a lot of the Bill of Rights, alas, is not really you know, taken very seriously even today. Does anybody, has anybody heard about the Ninth Amendment? The Ninth Amendment? Oh, love the Ninth Amendment. Here you go. Check this out. Oh, here, here's what happened. So the Bill of Rights is there. People say, well, you got all these protections. It's not enough. We're still worried about federal government. All right, we'll give you a Bill of Rights. So people look at the Bill of Rights and go, oh, this is good, this is good, I like this. But here's a problem. It says Congress shall not abridge freedoms of speech, shall not abridge freedom of religion, shall not quarter troops in our homes. But, you know, you really cannot list all the rights we have. For example, I have a right to wear a hat, don't I? Of course I do. Does, do is there anything in the Bill of Rights that says I have a right to wear a hat? No except for the Ninth Amendment, which says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights, freedom of speech, no quartering of troops, etc., shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So the concern was this. Lawmakers would say, we covered all the rights you have in the Bill of Rights, and there's nothing in there about hats, so no more hats. And to that you want to say... Well, you, you, you said some of the stuff that were, you know, that some of the rights that were really important, you listed them, thank you very much, but those other rights didn't get in here. I just want to make clear that's what the Ninth Amendment does, among other things, the Bill of Rights. But the Ninth Amendment says just because you listed these important things does not mean that's an exhaustive listing and everything else can be regulated now. The Ninth Amendment, if we took it seriously, would be an incredibly power, powerful limitation on government. It basically says if we don't say specifically that you can do this federal government, you can't do it. So that could be a really powerful limitation if we took it seriously. I take it seriously, but I'm not the guy they ask <laughs> when they're adjudicating the constitutionality of laws. So these are all things about the way the Constitution is written, including the fact that it is written, that really could powerfully limit government. So let me just take a breath here because this is what I want to say about writing the Constitution. Got any questions about that? Okay, so far? Okay. And by the way, Alex, you're going to give me the same time later as before? Yeah, good. All right, so let's turn from this. So that's the Constitution we have. Wow, it sounds great. You read it and you go, this is so libertarian. I would take this to my seasteading uh, platform. It just doesn't seem to have worked out that way. Why not? Let's talk about the way it's, in fact, been read to kind of take away or limit these really powerful provisions. And the question comes about how should we interpret the Constitution? You sit down and you read this and you say, this sounds awesome, but you're not a judge. What are judges doing? What should judges do when they sit and read this, assuming they do, which I'm afraid they don't always? <laughs> um, even though they all take oaths, they all take oaths to uphold and affirm the Constitution. Well, what, what should they do? There's different theories of interpretation. And one theory is basically you just do whatever is expedient. Language is flexible. Talk to any attorney. We are professionals at this. <laughs> and 
you know, we can't let this document get in the way of doing what has to be done. That is a very popular theory of constitutional law. If you can even dignify it with the label law. If the notion is, we'll just twist the language as much as we have to, or even ignore it if it kind of gets in the way, so we can get done what we think has to be done, that's arguably not satisfying the rule of law. I could give you so many examples of this. Um, I'll give you just one. You might have heard of the case of Kilo. Has anybody heard about the case of Kilo, Suzanne Kilo? So she had a house in um, uh, Connecticut, and they wanted to seize her property to give it over to uh, Pfizer, a pharmaceutical company. Pfizer came into this, this new London, Connecticut, came into this town and kind of have a depressed local economy, and Pfizer said, you know, we'll build a big kind of conference center here and offices for our pharmaceutical business. We'll do great stuff for your town. There's going to be people working here. Finally, this kind of depressed area will have a lot of jobs and new buildings. But there's a problem. There's all these private property owners kind of like in the way. City of New London, can you help us out here? you got the power of eminent domain, don't you? All right, well, just use that for us and give us the land. Okay, says the city of New London, and among the people they went to was Suzanne Kilo. They said, Miss Kilo, nice house you got here. Pink house, as it turns out. It was like her, her little castle. She loved her little pink house. And they said, Suzanne Kilo, we're taking your house. For what? Is this like for a city park, building a highway, airport? We're going to give it to Pfizer. And that's what they did. But the, the Constitution says in Article 5 of the Bill of Rights, it says... Um, I've got to start in the right place here. There it is. Nor sh- no person, well, they're telling what lawmakers can't do. And they end up with, they have a whole list of things. You can't be deprived of life or liberty or property without due process of law. And then it ends with this. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And what they did in Kilo is effectively they took private property for private use. I mean, the city maybe had it for like a millisecond, basically. They said, thank you, yoink. Oh, this is ours. Here you go, Pfizer. <laughs> and they paid Suzanne Kilo. She just didn't want to sell. And she would have had no case at all had it been for a public park or highway or airport, something like that. But her argument before the Supreme Court, eventually it made it for the Supreme Court, was this is not for public use. They're giving it to this private company. And the Supreme Court upheld that. Effectively, what they did is they said it's, not, it's for a public purpose. And you go, what's it? Let me just double check this. No, sorry. It says public use. The Supreme Court said, well, I mean, they had a plan. The city, the city of London had this plan for economic development. And it's going to help the community in their judgment. And in their judgment, it helps the community most if you give it to a private party. It's just hard to see how you can fit that within the language of the Constitution. Basically, they said, well, this is good. It's a good thing to do. It proves expedient. Well, it also happens to gut the Constitution's language. Another theory, and this is also what they did in Kelo, is they said, well, we are the Supreme Court. We are empowered to interpret this. We are the highest court in the land. And furthermore, we have some precedents, which in the past, you know, shows how we've interpreted the Constitution. And you want to know what this means? Well, just just put it down for a second. Just put down that document, and let's talk about what it means. First of all, ask us, because we're all experts. Look at our robes. They're black. We're styling. We have a big marble edifice in D.C. We are the professionals. You're mere novices. We're hired to do this. You're amateurs. And we've been doing this for, well, since the Constitutional Republic was launched. And we have all these cases. So to really know what this means, you can't read this. (laughs) You're so simple-minded and silly. No. You can't just read that. Don't be so simple-minded. You have to read lots and lots of case law, which has interpreted this language. Then you'll know what it means. You go, well, but I know what this means. It says public use. I know what public use means. No, no, you think you know what it means. No, you've got to check with us and all of our precedents to figure out what it means. And this gives us a living Constitution. No, this is a good thing. Trust me on this. It's a good thing because, because the Constitution's like, oh, 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 you know, it's breathing. It's alive. It's flexible. It's metastasizing. It's mutating. Whoops, did I just say that? (laughs) I mean, it's living in a good way, like a beautiful flowering tree. And you can count on us. Just trust us here, because we're experts, and we'll keep the Constitution flexible. We'll interpret this to mean what it should mean today. Now, I I know I'm being a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit snarky here about this, 
This is probably the prevailing theory. No one will really come out and say, let's just interpret it in a way that gets the job done. Not usually. You'll find a few law professors who will say that. There are some out there who say basically there's no such thing as a theory of interpretation. It's all political power. And we'll just make up the arguments that we have to to kind of get past the snicker test. But most people say this is what it is. They say, look, you want to know what the Supreme Court thinks? You want to know what the Constitution means? You ask the Supreme Court. That's the prevailing theory of constitutional law today. There is another theory. There's actually, I'm going to give you two more theories. This is the one that is most popular, certainly with conservatives, and with most libertarians today. I'm on a mission, my friends. My mission is to convince my libertarian and classical liberal fellow travelers they should not have this theory. This should not be their theory. I'm going to give you my fourth theory is kind of my favorite approach to Constitution, and so far it's mostly just one guy talking, but I might get one or two more people with me on this issue today. But let's talk about this for a second. This is not bad in terms of whether or not you like liberty. The original meaning of the Constitution, goes the argument, is how we should interpret it today. If you want to know what the Constitution means, you put yourself back in time in the shoes of the people who ratified the Constitution. Now, for some provisions of the Constitution, that means you've got to kind of mentally travel back in time about 200 years. And of course, the Constitution has been amended since then. So if you're talking about the 14th Amendment of the Bill of Rights, that was ratified in the late 1800s, 1868. So you've got to kind of put yourself in 1868 to figure out what the 14th Amendment means. So this is a very popular theory of interpretation with conservatives and sort of by default, most libertarians, because libertarians can tell, they look at original meaning, and it gives you pretty good protections of liberty. Why? Because, man, those founders were anti-statists. If you can travel back in time, imagine yourself reading this like a founder. Someone of that generation would have read it when they took private property rights so seriously, when they really wanted to limit government. You're going to get some pretty libertarian results. So that's a good thing. So the outcome of this theory is pretty good in terms of giving you freedom, but not always. Because there's a provision here, I'll just get, there's a few places it kind of, you notice problems, and here's one of them. In the um, uh, Eighth Amendment, it says, excessive bail shall not, this is of the Bill of Rights, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Now, we could fight over this. What does cruel and unusual mean? Those folks are going to say, if they're honest about it, yeah, whatever we want it to mean. Supreme Court's going to say, we're going to interpret the Constitution kind of keeping it up to date. You've got to trust we're going to get it right. We're just nine old people kind of sequestered from the rest of society, frankly, because we live in these rarefied echelons of the law. But still, you know, we read the papers, so trust us and we'll keep it up to date. And this is basically what's happened in, in Eighth Amendment law. But original meaning person, if they're honest about it, they have to say, well, let's go back and imagine what the founding generation thought cruel and unusual was. And this is a little scary because it was widely accepted back then that you could publicly lash people, that you could brand them if they had broken the law. Evidently, in the founding era, they didn't think it was cruel and unusual to take somebody and time to a post in the city square and whip them. I don't think that's how we'd view punishments today. Most of us would kind of be appalled. Some of us would be you know, entertained. In fact, I can imagine doing reality TV built around that. But most people would say, man, that is certainly not usual. <laughs> that's kind of freaky, weird, unusual. And arguably it's cruel because, well, you end up you know, flaying somebody's flesh till the bone appears. That kind of is cruel. I think that qualifies as cruel, probably. Branding them with a piece of hot metal. That's probably cruel and unusual. But if you're really committed to original meaning, you've got to say, as Scalia has admitted, Scalia is a Supreme Court justice. He's big on original meaning. And he has come out and said, yes, today, public lashings and brandings would be constitutional. Now, Scalia, fo Scalia followed up with saying, look, I think that'd be a really stupid thing to do today. And I don't think it would happen politically. Because why? Because all of us would kind of be appalled. So Scalia's argument, it's not a crazy argument, is that's the original meaning. Suck it up and accept it. That's just the way it works. But don't worry about it because it's never going to happen. 
No one's going to pass a law saying, let's publicly lash people. So Scalia says, original meaning really gets you what you want. All right, well, that's Scalia's view. So let me just take a breath here. These are the three theories on the table. We can actually get it down to these two. These are the two big contenders, because nobody really admits to this, even if they think it. These are the two big contenders. Any questions about how those work? All right, let me roll out to you this other contender. And this is the theory that I've been working on. I want to be absolutely clear, my friends. <laughs> it's really pretty much just one guy talking. I mean, I'm trying to convince some other folks. And one of the things I love about the Students for Liberty is last year I spoke at their event at Pe Pepperdine, and I had a little breakout session, and I kind of talked about this. And they really liked it. So they invited me back this year to the Pepperdine. It's like the Southern California uh, gathering of Students for Liberty. And now they're going to let me talk to everybody. I get to argue this again, but it sounds like I'm starting to convince people. I'm excited by that. And so my argument is... There should be another approach to the Constitution that should be especially popular with libertarians. And what we should look for is what you would think if you sat down and read this today, right now. The present public and plain meaning. That's what I think we should interpret the Constitution to mean. It's basically you, average lay people, citizens who are bound by this document, you sit down and read it, you see cruel and unusual we ask you what you think that means. Not what they thought originally, not what the Supreme Court thinks. We ask you, what do you think it means? Because why? Because it's kind of like a contract. As we said earlier with Simon, you, you know, you're not, no one offers this to you like a contract. We're not saying it is a contract. But basically, this approach comes from contract theory, and it's designed to maximize the consent of the governed. So let me say a little more about this to explain it. You guys have all seen this? Has anybody not seen this? So this is a, oh, I haven't, okay, so I'll tell you about it. This is the Nolan chart. And the Nolan chart is designed to illustrate why classical liberals and libertarians are so often frustrated about public discussions of political ideology. Because if you watch, I don't know, CNBC or the ABC Nightly News or Frontline, and they're trying to talk about, say, Ron Paul, they'll make this mistake once you understand the lay of the land, they'll make this mistake of saying, well, you know, he's a far right wing. I mean, he's even more far right wing than Newt Gingrich. And it's just not understanding the relevant parameters. And here are the relevant parameters. You've got social liberties are on this scale. So this is stuff like your freedom to do drugs or read pornography or fornicate with whomever so you want to fornicate with. Social liberties. Over here, economic liberty. So this is your right to start a business, to not suffer onerous regulation or taxation. And the people on the right, roughly the Republicans, although we know they have their failings as far as regulation goes sometimes, they're basically big on economic liberties, but low on social liberties. So there's your Republicans. And over here on the left, it's exactly the opposite. You can read the porn, that's fine, but man, you're going, to get pay, you're going to have to pay a lot of taxation if you make a lot of money selling pornography. And so this is your traditional left-to-right spectrum. Some people seem to like one kind of liberty, others like another kind of liberty. Then there's all kinds of folks in the middle, and they say, well, I don't think we should let people smoke marijuana, but, um, uh, you know, I think it's okay for them to, to look at pornography, and I don't think we should socialize the medical industry, but there should be a lot of regulations. It's just all kinds of intermediate positions. And that's why libertarians are frustrated, because if your mindset is limited to this spectrum in the middle, and you run into somebody who really likes all kinds of freedom, you don't know what to do with them. So you say things like, well, they're far right wing. Well, they're kind of, I don't know, you go far enough to the right, and it seems to circle around to the left. These people just don't know what the parameters are, because the libertarians are up here. Because why? Because they like both social and economic liberties. In fact, they will argue you can't separate the two. This is all premised on a mistake. You really cannot separate out social and economic freedoms. You can't. Because why? Because if I respect your property rights, that includes your right to sit in the privacy of your home and look at the pornography you like. It includes your right to control your own body. That's part of your property rights. I own my fingers and my hands. And if I want to put a doobie in them and put that smoke in my lungs, it's my own flipping business because it's my property. So you can see, if you take economic liberties very seriously, you end up favoring social liberties. You really can't pick and choose, not consistently. So there's the Nolan chart. Any questions about that? All right. So all 
I want to argue is, hey, libertarians, you like Nolan Chart? You look at this and you say, hey, yeah, I belong at the top. This makes sense to me. I would argue that this theory of constitutional interpretation I'm advocating is also specifically libertarian. And I'll explain this to you. The living constitutionalists are on to something. They got a good idea. They really do. What they like is making the Constitution responsive to present conditions, and that's a good thing. I like that the Supreme Court is going to keep cruel and unusual up to date. They're not going to be stuck in this world where you can publicly lash people. So good for those folks. I like that, just like I like the left-wing appreciation of social liberties. What the originalists have going for them is they take the language seriously. They sit down and they read the darn thing. And I like that. They're faithful to the text. Just like I like my friends on the right. They, they say, oh, we have too much economic regulation. Right there, brother. I agree totally. What we got to do, though, just as we did back with the Nolan chart, the libertarians say, well, let's combine these two things and get the best of both worlds. I say, well, let's combine these two things in constitutional interpretation. Let's have an interpretation that is responsive to the present meaning, but which is also faithful to the text. It's the best of both worlds. You guys like this in the Nolan chart, let's do it in constitutional interpretation. And what do we end up with? We end up sitting down and reading the text and taking it seriously, but we don't trust the Supreme Court and its precedents to determine the meaning of the Constitution. We basically ask the people who are bound, allegedly, by the Constitution, we ask them, what do you think it means? Because you're the person who's going to suffer the lash or not. We should care about the consent of the governed, not the consent of those nine black-robed justices. So that, in a nutshell, is this approach to constitutional interpretation that I favor. And I'll just take a breath here and say a few things about it and send you your breakout groups. Let's see if you've got questions about this so far. I mean, there are some tough problems that remain. Trust me. It's not like this solves all our problems. All right, let's say a few more things. I'll just spell this out a little more. So what do you get from this? Basically, what I'm arguing is, let's, let's, while conceding this is not a contract, it's not a contract, let's try to treat it as much like a contract as we can. And I taught contract law for 10 years, and then I went on and I taught torts, and now I'm teaching property. I like the common law courses. So I can tell you about contract law. If this were a contract, I didn't see that, Isaac. What do you got? Okay. If this were a contract, what any court worth its salt would do, suppose it's a contract between two of you, the court would say, basically, they'd ask a number of things. They'd say, let's look for the plain present public meaning. All right, that's what the court would ask. They'd say, you two parties to this contract, there's some language in here. We're uncertain, for example, it's a contract for the delivery of, of cereal. And we're not certain what cereal means. You might have had this problem, Daniel, with some of your suppliers. I don't know. I hope you don't. But you might have a fight about cereal because maybe they just dump on you a bunch of unprocessed wheat. <laughs> they say, if you ask an agronomist, someone who studies agriculture, they'll tell you, yes, that's a cereal grain. <laughs> Dan says, uh, I actually wanted, you know, Captain Crunch cereal. <laughs> So we would have this fight over what cereal means. And we would look for the plain present public meaning. We treat these people as just lay people using ordinary language, typically, and we'd say, what does cereal mean to people like that? It doesn't solve all our problems, but it tells you what kind of question to ask. Plain present public meaning. Also, in contract law, you have a non-waivable default rule of good faith and fair dealing. Now, here's the idea. If you enter into a contract with somebody... It's not like you're now, you know, soul brothers or something. It's not like you've become each other's keepers. But you promise to treat each other fairly, and that's part of the deal. It's, a def it's an implied rule. It's a default rule, and you can't work around it. You can't have a clause in your contract that says, and by the way, we can stab each other in the back and cheat and lie under this contract. You just can't do that. There's other things you can do. There's a lot of things you can do in contract law. It's very flexible. That's one thing you can't do. And you can see how this would work in the Constitution. We'd be able to go to the leaders of our country and say, you can't shaft us. You have to treat us in good faith and, and fair dealing, and you can't waive that. That's just part of the whole concept of being in a contract with somebody. Objective meaning matters, not subjective intent. You can't have people in contract law with secret meanings. You can't enter into a contract with the idea, oh, cereal to me means just one thing, unprocessed rye. That's my secret thought bubble interpretation of the word cereal. So you enter a contract with Dan for the delivery of cereal, and you give him an unprocessed rye flour, and he says, what? 
We're going to look at the objective meaning. It doesn't care what was in your thought bubble. We're going to look at the objective meaning. Not in the Randian objectivism sense. It just means we're going to look to the outside world. What, did the, what would anybody think serial means? And in the constitutional context, that means maybe somebody in D.C. says cruel and unusual. <laughs> I knew what that means. Well, it's not the legal meaning that we care about. What we care about is what you guys think cruel and unusual means. Here's another one. Plain meaning of the text trumps course of performance. Now, this happens, this happens all the time in contract law. You've got parties under a contract, and they perform under the contract, meaning they have a series of exchanges under the contract. And they might do things under the contract that don't quite conform to the language of the contract. So say, suppose Dan here accepts. I'm using Dan as an example because he told me about his very interesting business at lunch, and it involves cereal. And offers, uh, he basically offers kind of breakfast cereal to people. So he might have an agreement with somebody where they give him Cheerios. It says a variety of breakfast cereals, and they always supply him with Cheerios, and it's always Cheerios. But he puts up with it because they give him a great price, and he never has a fight over it. But then the day comes when he decides, man, I really got to have a variety of breakfast cereals from this supplier because my other supplier of, of you know, uh, Wheat checks and Lucky Charms is backed out, and now I got to go to this supplier and say, you know, give me a variety of breakfast cereals. And that person says, you've always accepted Cheerios. It's all I've ever given you. You've always paid for it. That must be what a variety of breakfast cereals means because, uh, because each little Cheerio is like a special snowflake. <laughs> and Dan is, Dan is able to whip out the text of the contract and say, it says a variety of breakfast cereals, but you always accepted Cheerios. I'm allowed to do that, but now I'm going to enforce the plain meaning of the text. You could do that in contract law, no problem. He's going to win that case, and I'd say we should win that case in constitutional law. Supreme Court says, well, we've always, under our precedents, interpreted public use to mean you can give it to a private party. And we say, well, interesting for you, Supreme Court, but we don't care. What we care about is the plain meaning of the text. And we see public use, and damn it, that's what it means. We want to be able to do that with Supreme Court if we want to protect our rights. There's places in the Constitution where the terms are kind of unspecified. Like reasonable search and seizure. Boy, there's a squish word for you. Reasonable. You can definitely fight over what reasonable means. And this happens all the time in contract law, too. So what do you do? You go to Hertz, and Hertz says, you shall return the vehicle to us with no more than a reasonable amount of wear and tear. And Hertz, when you enter this contract, they have this like multi-page contract. Here. Lots and lots of writing, very fine print. They slide it across the desk. You're in a hurry to get your vacation started. You, maybe you flip through it. If you're me, you actually flip through it and read it. I'm very annoying to these people, but I've studied contract law, and I like to be a pest. But most people just say, yeah, whatever. They hand it back. So you bring back the vehicle, and it's got some mud on it, say. And Hertz says, oh, you're in violation of the terms of our contract. This is not reasonable wear and tear. And you go, well, I think it is. You talk to some other people, and they go, yeah, you know, cars get dirty. You wash it off. Big deal. And Hertz goes, no, 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 no. That's just not reasonable, not reasonable, not reasonable. So you've got to fight. You're going to probably win that fight against Hertz. Because it was their contract. If they don't want a car muddy, they're going to have to be a little more detailed than that. It's the big corporation. You're just a little person. They're shoving this across the desk at you. We're going to interpret it in your way. Same thing with the Constitution. We run across reasonable search and seizure. What does that mean? Supreme Court says it means they can put on latex gloves as long as they take you to a private room. And you go, oh, no. no, that's not reasonable. Sorry. No, we're going to interpret this vague term against federal or state power, and in defense of individual rights. I hope you guys can see that this approach to the Constitution results in a pretty libertarian body of, contract, of constitutional law. And also, this is my favorite one. So let's go back to Hertz. This one I thought of myself. I'm unduly proud of this, I will confess. I'm a proud man. Vanity is a vice, I know. But I just like to just giggle and think about this. So you go to Hertz, and you enter a contract with Hertz. And Hertz knows you're going to have a fight once in a while with Hertz. But that's cool. They put an arbitration clause into their contract. It says if you have a dispute about the terms of this contract or the performance thereof, they're under, it'll be submitted to arbitration. And you go, okay, arbitration, everybody does that. That's cool. It saves us all time and money. But you look at this arbitration. Oh, all disputes will be resolved by a panel consisting of Hertz's CEO, CFO, and COO. <laughs> There's no way any court would uphold that provision. There's no way a court would uphold that provision. You take this to any state or federal court, they'd say, that is fundamentally unfair. You can't be a judge of your own cause. Now, what happens if you have a fight with the federal government? 
You see where this is going? You end up in federal court, and you're facing employees of the federal government, and they're going to decide your rights. Is there a problem with that? Yeah, I think there is, on the face of it. But you might say, well, Tom, I mean, somebody's got to resolve the dispute. What are you going to do? You do exactly the same thing with constitutional law that you do with Hertz. Here's the way the American Arbitration Association does commercial arbitration. If there's an arbitration clause in a contract, check it out sometime. They typically say something like, in accordance with the rules of the AAA, American Arbitration Association. Here's how it works. I've got to fight with Simon Say. We have a contract, and we have an arbitration clause, and we don't go to court because we're going to arbitrate. Well, how do we pick the panelists who decide our dispute? Simon picks his favorite panelist. I pick my favorite panelist. And those two panelists get together and choose a third party. And I'm just saying, let's do the same thing with con law. I argue this, that the federal government has exceeded the bounds of its authority when I go through security. And I guess Jesse Ventura is having this big fight now. Jesse Ventura has a big fight. He's kind of an honorary guy, and I respect that. He says, this whole thing, the way they're doing airport security violates my rights. I think it should be Jesse picks his favorite guy, maybe, I don't know, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and then the, the, the TSA gets to pick their favorite person, Genghis Khan. I don't know who that would be. We're getting a very interesting panel here. <laughs> and then those two people pick another person. And that's who will tell us whether or not what the federal government is doing is constitutional. I think it's utterly reasonable. We do the same thing in a commercial contract. Let's do the same thing here. All right. So um, that's what I have to say about reading a constitution. And I'm going to send you to your breakout groups, but let me just point out before I send you that there's one more topic I want to talk about when you get back. So come back with your questions. You might want to tackle this. The question here is a tough one. It's, why should we respect the Constitution? If we should. Some of you will say, uh, we shouldn't. It's all unjustified. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. Okay, that's one answer. Most people I talk to say, well, I don't know. It seems like it's pretty good, and I live here and all, so there must be something to it. And then we'll talk about that when we get back. But right now, I want to send you to breakout groups. You want to come back with questions, be happy to field them. And we'll talk some more and answer your questions. Well, thanks for your questions and for coming back. And I'll try to tackle some of these as well as I can. Let's start here. Are the inefficiencies and costs in our current structure of interpretation more or less costly than the inefficiencies which could or would grow out of a complete overhaul of the system? I think I'd have to say that. As my, as my students know, I always say, good question, what do you think? Um, that's really hard to say. I will say this for the present system that basically favors the uh, you know, Supreme Court's interpretation. And basically it does give us, well it gives us certainty about the law in a sense. In that you can go to a constitutional lawyer and they will know how to find an answer to your question. You ask, what constitutes reasonable search and seizure? And a constitutional lawyer will you know, know to look maybe glance at the Fourth Amendment, but mostly read a bunch of case law and interpret it for you and probably charge you a lot of money. And probably also say, at the end of the day, it depends. The joke I have, one of the, joke I have, one of the jokes I have with my students is, the answer to every legal question, here it goes, you can use this yourselves, it depends. It always starts out with, it depends, and then after that, there's some important stuff that follows. But it always starts, it depends, and you know, it depends on what? And then the lawyer starts talking, and the clock starts running, and you end up paying. And that's, that was a great thing about the present system. So it's at least efficient in the sense that you know where to go for the answers. You go read a bunch of Supreme Court precedents. But again, lay people, I mean, maybe you could handle it. Probably you guys could. You're smart, you're good readers and everything. But you've got to think about all the many people who basically have high school educations. And we're going to say to them, because they're protective of the Constitution too. It's their Constitution too. We're going to say to them, oh, go read a bunch of Supreme Court cases. And they'd say, what do you mean? Like, these are boxes? What are cases? I mean, they might not know what the heck you're talking about. So that would be, you know, a change. If, if you could say to those people to say Joe and Jane Sixpack, well, sit down with the Constitution and read it and tell me what you think. And, and they could read it. The language is pretty straightforward. It does not use many big fancy words. But that is a concern a lot of people have expressed when I tell them about my preferred theory of constitutional interpretation is they say, um, you know, I just don't know what we're going to get out of this. It's kind of scary to me. It would change things, and I have to admit that I'm not certain how things would change. I'll, I'll say that, you know, in some cases, uh, it would pretty much follow present law, but it would be different in some other places. Um, so all I can say is I'm uncertain about this. Oh, I should also say about originalists, because I said that's, uh, you know, another kind of, the two big contenders are living constitutionalism, where you depend on Supreme Court precedent. What about originalists? I mean, how do they stand on efficiency and costs? Well, the originalists will tell you 
one of the charms of their approach to constitutional interpretation is it's stable. They say it satisfies the rule of law because all you got to do is you figure out for once what the founders meant by cruel and unusual and you're done. You've answered the question. You don't have the Supreme Court changing the interpretation as you go along. If I could find it, I'd read you a quote. I won't bother with it, but there's, there's, some, there's funny things the Supreme Court has done with the meaning, the alleged meaning of the Constitution over time. They've changed it and then changed it back and changed it back. And all the time they're maintaining this is what the Constitution means, but it keeps changing. And the originalists say, well, at least we don't do that. You know, we go back and we read the Federalist Papers and Thomas Jefferson's letters and the notes on the ratification debates, and we, at the end of the day, will be able to tell you, here's what that word means. The problem is, you've got to be a historian, basically, to get the answers. And again, you say to Joe and Jane Sixpack, they ask, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that, that the cops can use, you know, a, 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 a heat-detecting uh, camera to see if I've got a grow house in my garage? And you have to say to them, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to go ask a historian what reasonable search and seizure meant to the founders, and we'll get back to you in about six months there with a paper with a bunch of footnotes. <laughs> and then, of course, what they'll say is, well, the founders didn't have grow houses, so we can only surmise what the founders would have said. <laughs> so I'm not certain, but I, will, I think it's worth trying. I'd like to see at least a lot of attempts to find the plain, present, public meaning of the Constitution, and we'll see how efficient it is. That's about all I can say to that. I hope that's satisfactory. Um, I love this question. I can't do it justice, though. It says, can you speak a little bit about the Espionage Acts and the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and their effects on the development of the common law? That's a very erudite question. You've out-erudited me, I think. I can say about the writ of habeas corpus that um, Lincoln suspended it during the Civil War in Maryland, which is a point that still aggravates some uh, friends of liberty, myself included, but I can't think of exactly how that affected the development of the common law. I think this question must be, who, who asked this? You must be looking back to actually English history. Am I right? Um, I had a, a class on, okay. honors class, just on the First Amendment and the Supreme Court cases uh, involved with it. And one of them was about the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. I wanted to see if that court decision had any effect on later court decisions, uh. you know, and how, how it kind of, we kind of interpret well, yeah, you, you, you have erudited me. I haven't studied a ton of legal history, um, especially English common law leading up to uh, the Constitution, except in the area of quartering. I happen to be, if I may brag, the world's foremost expert about the Third Amendment. That's the one that has to do with quartering troops, because nobody else cares. <laughs> it's easy. And by my, the way, my friends, my academically oriented friends, that was, I was in law school, and I wanted to publish a law review paper. And, I, and, it, and it was, back then, it was the uh, 200th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. And I thought, okay, great topic. But everyone's written about, oh, no one's written about the Third Amendment because nobody cares. So I seized on that. So look for little niches that other people have overlooked. And they're going to be obscure, they're going to be unimportant, and that's why they're overlooked. But you'll find some interesting stuff there. I found some great stuff about the Third Amendment. Anyhow, about that, yeah, I would say Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus in the Civil War, basically he got away with it. And I don't think that's done great things for constitutional law. That's about all I can say. In fact, we should talk later. You could probably teach me a thing or two. Let's jump over to this side. How could the institution of government grow responsibly while still operating under the, contract, uh, the context of the Constitution? Living Constitution that fails to provide constitutional protections, for example. Um, well, if I understand your question, I'd say... I mean, look, I, I, I'm not going to say the way government, governance has worked in the United States under the Constitution has been a disaster. It hasn't developed as well as I would have liked, but I recognize I'm kind of an outlier. I'm not your average person or average academic or average lawyer. I have kind of extreme views. I think they're extremely right, but I've I got to admit, you know, those other people are well-meaning and very smart, and you should always take that into account. You know, don't disparage the people who disagree with you because, man, there's a lot of smart people out there and everybody, I think, basically means well. It's very rare you run across someone who, you know, kind of cackles and goes, <laughs> I mean, those people just, they, they're in movies. But if you could sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart with even politicians who can be very charming, very charming people, you realize, to your horror, this person actually thinks they're making the world a better place. God, they're, they're blinkered and ignorant and misled. But in their heart of hearts, they sleep well at night thinking, I'm fighting the good fight. So anyhow, with regard to this, I'd say, you know, I would say the institution of government has not really grown responsibly. It's mostly just grown. 
and, and that's because of this living constitutionalism. But, um, you know, I guess I'd say it could be worse. I didn't talk about this part of the chart back here. Whoops, wrong way. I didn't talk about this uh, down here, but we could be stuck with this, right? Totalitarians say, I don't like social liberties or economic liberties, and the, con and the, the parallel in the constitutional context, these are basically the people who think, I don't care about whether or not it's responsive to current needs, and I don't care about the text. I just want to have power. I want to be a tyrant. And we have not really suffered extremes of tyranny in the United States, so it could have been worse. It could be worse. Is that somewhat responsive to your question? Is that all right? Okay, good. All right, I got you guys here. Let's go back to this one. How would a society-wide interpretation of the Constitution be formed? Uh, well, right now, and this is a criticism of my approach to constitutionalism, is you know, we have specialists who handle this problem for us. And Deanna told us about rational ignorance of voters. And, I, you know, uh, there's, I find appealing the thought that Joe Sixpack and Jane Sixpack could actually have their pocket constitutions, and they would pull them out from time to time and wave them under the noses of government officials, kind of like the Tea Party people do, although I don't know that they've read every part of the Constitution. But I kind of <laughs> like, like their attitude, though. I really do. They're speaking truth to power, and they're going back to this, and I love that about them. I think that's really great. But I've got to admit that's somewhat, uh, I don't know, it's a Pollyannish view of human nature and modern society. There's only so many hours in the day, and a lot of people don't want to fool with this stuff. And I understand that. I mean, they're just trying to pay the mortgage and take care of their kids and go to church and mow the lawn. So I'm not sure it would be very workable to have everybody all the time having their consciousness raised and debating constitutional law. I just don't think it's going to happen whether or not I'd like to have it happen. So I guess I'd say um, I don't think that's going to happen, that everyone's going to be engaged in this project, and it's probably just as well. But I do think if uh, we could view the Constitution more as a document that now means what it means to you, the governed, and is a real limit on government power, more people would be involved and engaged in constitutional law. Right now they just say, you know, that's something people in Washington, D.C. do, and I don't know what they're talking about because they say some crazy stuff that doesn't make sense to me, but, eh, you know, what do I know? I'm a layperson and they're legal experts and they got cool black robes. And I think it's a shame that people are so disengaged and maybe more would be engaged with my preferred method of interpretation, and maybe that'd be a disaster. But it'd be worth trying. <laughs> be worth trying. Uh, how could a privately run court system operate in today's world? Well, it there are privately operated court systems now in a way. I mentioned earlier the American Arbitration Association. That's one of many organizations that adjudicate disputes. In fact, future litigators, I was a litigator myself, almost nothing goes to trial anymore. Everything settles. Almost everything settles. Why? Because it's very expensive going to trial. The court system is very inefficient. It takes a long time. People in business just want to get it over with. They say, just let's settle. I'm just, I don't want to pay all the attorneys. I don't want to have to do mock jury hearings, and it's just too expensive. Let's just settle this dispute, and I go back to making money. That's what I do. So almost everything goes to arbitration, and almost everything settles. And I think that's a good thing by and large, but that's what the world we live in is basically, that's how legal disputes get solved these days. They don't go to court. Or maybe they file papers in court, and then they have a kind of a process to the side. And it works okay. It, it, the world is not falling apart, despite the fact that very few things make it into the public court system and go all the way through trial, and it's probably just as well. So that's, just as I told you with polycentric law, some of you might have been shocked. What are we talking about? There's like one law, and it comes from Washington, or, well, you know, maybe from the capital of my state, but that's it. And I argued, no, we actually live in a very polycentric system. And I'd say the same thing about here, private court systems. Basically, that's the world we live in. You don't notice it. You know, for example, it's all true of policing, too. There are many more private police in the United States than government police. Many, many more. That's the world we live in. Those mall cops, the cops you see around campus here, private cops, many, many more of them. That's the way the world is. You don't necessarily notice, but that's it. How do we move towards arbitration in federal courts? I've actually looked at this. I haven't done much more than kind of poke around. But you heard about my idea, how I think I'm a little bit, you know, I kind of have, I guess, the air of a... a a naughty little boy who's discovered, you know, something is giggling about it, and that's just part of my nature. But, you know, I just love to kind of tease the system, saying what you got would never pass muster if it were in a private contract. You've got these federal employees determining the power of the federal government. It's just nuts. It doesn't make sense. And I describe this kind of arbitration process, which I guess you still don't like, Simon. We can talk about that later. 
Um, but basically, I've read the statutes that empower federal courts to hear cases, and I've talked with people who do um, federal litigation, and they have told me basically, at least what you're proposing, Tom, is not clearly forbidden. <laughs> no one is doing it, but there's actually a possibility you could get a district court judge, a federal district court judge, to agree to let the parties resolve their dispute in this way. That's about as far as I can go. Because it turns out that district court judges have a lot of leeway in empowering the parties before them with litigation to resolve their disputes in alternative fora. And the courts are allowed to do this so much because why? Because the court system is overburdened. Anybody, why is the court system overburdened, the federal court system? What are they so busy doing? It's a, it's a drug war. It's a drug war. The drug war cases have clogged the courts. That's one reason arbitration is so popular. You've got all these people in line with business disputes, and they're going to federal court and state courts too, same thing. And the queue is just packed with all these drug war cases, and they can't get their disputes resolved. They just kind of throw their hands up in the air and say, let's go to private arbitration. Look at that line. That's crazy. Of course, the guys in the line with the drug war, they can't go to private court systems. It's a government system or nothing for them. So that's why the private business people have thrown up their hands and invented this kind of alternative system. And I'd, I'd say, you know, that, that and then the district courts have been empowered to let people do that. So maybe we could use that. You could use that to maybe convince some overburdened trial court judge to let the parties take their constitutional dispute to this kind of panel. It doesn't look to be plainly illegal, at least. I can go that far. All right, I think I got to all those questions. Thank you. You might have more questions in a minute because I want to say a little bit more about some of these other topics. So let's talk about, we made it through the reading of the Constitution. I got to go ahead here, too. So let's talk about respecting the Constitution. Why should you respect the Constitution? If you should. As I said, there's plenty of libertarians I've met who basically say you shouldn't. It's all, it's criminal enterprise. The initiation of coercion makes the state per se wrong. It's just a gang of thugs who happen to wear fancy outfits and they wave around the Constitution, but they don't care about it. And they'll just go as far as they can to take your stuff and squash your liberties, and all you can do is suffer it or leave the country. And that's the world, bucko. You just got to open up your eyes to the ugly world we live in. There's plenty of libertarians who say that. I don't have that view myself, but it's a very popular view. Most people I talk to say, you know, they just kind of have this inchoate feeling. They, they love their country, and uh, they respect the flag, and they understand it's an imperfect world, that there is no better country for them. And it's kind of unthinking, perhaps, but it's heartfelt, and I understand that. So they respect the Constitution just because they haven't really thought about it much. And they venerate the founders. They were brought up to venerate the founders. And, uh, and you can sit down and read the Constitution. It sounds great. So... Let's talk about this a little more carefully, though. So for most people, it's kind of an inchoate kind of gut level. I'm an American. It's the Constitution. Fourth of July is a big holiday. I love my country. Let's talk about it in a little more detail, though. Why should you respect the Constitution? Well, one argument is, and this is very popular among libertarians and classical liberals, and I like it, too. We should respect the Constitution because it is designed to protect our natural rights. So the moral justification for our system of federal governance is that the Constitution protects these fundamental liberties that we have. And this is Randy Barnett's argument. He says, the Constitution is designed to protect natural rights. And so long as we respect those natural rights, or to the degree that the government respects our natural rights, it deserves the presumption of our respect. To the extent that it gives us the presumption of liberty, we should give it the presumption of our respect. And you have here this quote from him, the burden that, that there's a burden on the government to show that it has to exercise, if it's going to restrict our liberty, that you know, the burden's on the government to do this. One way to explain this is, this is a beautiful phrasing. Randy didn't come up with it, but he introduced me to it. He says, here's how we should view government. It should be a little island of power, a little island of government power in what is an ocean of liberty. The presumption is you've got liberty. That's what the Ninth Amendment tells us, right? You've got unenumerated rights. That's the presumption. In a little tiny area, we're going to have government power. And Barnett says as long as you do that, you have that approach to liberty and government, that, is, um, that makes the Constitution more legitimate. 
We respect the Constitution because it's designed to protect our natural rights. That's Ryan Barnett's argument. It's not a bad argument. But I would say, um, um, oh wait, I had one more point here. Yeah, yeah, this is basically hypothetical consent. Hypothetical consent is sort of what you would consent to. We ask, kind of, has anybody heard of Rawls, John Rawls, the philosopher? So Rawls has this theory of political justification, and he justifies the government's exercise of power on grounds that it would be consented to by you if we asked you. We say the method of his ideal government, would you would agree to it if we asked you. We don't actually ask you, but we kind of do this thought experiment. We say you would agree to this if we asked you. And Randy Barnett's argument is the same way. He says basically you would agree to this form of government where your natural rights are protected. You would if we asked you. Are you going to ask me? No. <laughs> it's all pretend. So that's hypothetical consent. But I've, I'm, I've become a student of consent, and I've learned from, I told you I like to teach the common law courses, and I've, un, I've gathered this out of studying many, many different cases throughout the common law, and I've discovered courts have this kind of ranking of consent. There's more than one flavor of consent, and some types of consent are more powerful than others. Hypothetical consent is better than nothing, for sure. If you can say of somebody, you would have agreed to that, that tells us something about whether or not it's justified. But best of all is what they actually say. So I'll give you an example. There's a case that involves hypothetical consent. Some doctors came across a guy lying unconscious in the street. He, this is Putnam, Putnam, Putnam versus Wisdom. The guy fell off a streetcar. He's lying unconscious in the street. A couple of doctors say, oh my gosh, there's an unconscious guy here. And they render aid. They clean up his wound and bandage him. And later the question, and then the, the doctors gave this guy a bill later when he comes around. If we helped you out, here's the bill for our care. Does he have to pay? Yes, says the court, because any one of us would agree to have a medical professional help us if we were in a like context. That's a pretty good argument, don't you think? I think that's the right decision. But not if the guy wakes up and says, go away. If he expressly does not consent, that trumps the hypothetical consent. It's just a way of showing there's this ranking of consent. Too many people think about consent as just binary. You either consent or you don't. You consent to this government or you don't. And I want to say, no, it's actually much more graduated. It's, there's tones of gray. And what we should aim to do, and, and the further up the scale you can get, the more justified the institution is. So we should try to have a government that pushes up towards the top. We should always try to make our government more consent rich. Hypothetical consent ain't bad, but we can do better. And my, my approach to constitutional theory is designed to, I'll have to go through this quickly, but it's designed to maximize consent, to get us closer to express consent. It's about consent of the governed. That's what I'm after. And there's some great arguments for consent. I won't go through here, but let me just tell you that if you think about it, you'll realize consent's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. If you can show people consent to something, you've really shown something very powerful. My favorite argument is the transcendental one, not the Kantian transcendentalist, but it works like this. The very fact that I'm arguing with you shows we care about consent. Why do you engage in argument with people to persuade them? It's because you want their consent. So the very process of asking, should we, you know, how do we justify government, shows we care about consent. Think about that. It's kind of like a circular, it's really transcendental argument. I'll say a few more things here and I'm going to have to wrap up. Let me just observe this. If you have this approach to political justification, you don't simply say, the government's justified. People talk like that. They say, well, this government is justified or it's not. I always want to say, well, with regard to whom? Because it might be justified with regard to some people who say, I love my country. But other people might say, you know, I got some problems with this country. I'm leaving. So you've got you to tie it to a particular person. You can't just have a blanket consent. And you also have to say, compared to what? Compared to what? It's not simply, the United States is justified. It's, well, it's maybe, and this is what I say. Do I regard the United States government as justified? The exercise of government power on me by the federal government is justified. And I'll say, with regard to me, yes, relative to the exercise of power by many other governments, right? If China walks up and says, Tom, we got some laws for you, I say, yeah, your exercise of power is less justified than the federal government's. But not compared to a better world I can imagine. 
And I'm trying to get us to that better world. I'm always trying to make the world more consent rich. I'm going to not talk about these next bits because I'm almost out of time, but we can talk about it later if you like. And this is very funny, but I'm not going to go through it now. Well, maybe I will. Anybody want to say this? I'll do this and then I'll do my conclusion. So I came up with this Pledge of Allegiance because I want the pledge to mean something. I want it to get consent from people. So I came up with this Pledge of Allegiance, which I say now, anytime I have to stand with a bunch of people and say the Pledge of Allegiance, because this is appalling to me. We got children who are below the age of consent reciting this. They're, you can't have a kid consent to the government. They don't know what they're doing. And furthermore, you're pledging allegiance to the flag? No, that's not what matters. That's just a symbol. What matters are the laws, the Constitution, and the laws promulgated under it. So let's do this. I want, to, so I want somebody to work, do this with me. I want you to say the Pledge of Allegiance this version you learned, and I'm going to say this, and you'll see that it even gets the same cadences. So you can stand in a crowd with people and say this, and just stand tall and do that, and they might look, what did he say? But it mostly sounds the same. Anybody, can anybody do this with me? Good volunteer? Come on, somebody. Simon, you like to talk. Do it with me. Really? All right. You can cross your fingers if you don't really want to get a pledge. You ready? I pledge allegiance to the laws of the United States of America on condition that it respect my rights, natural, constitutional, and statutory, with liberty and justice for all. I like the ending. I'm going to keep the ending. So you guys, it's kind of funny, and it's kind of fun, but I did that because it consent's important to me, and that's my way of expressing it. So in conclusion, um, we, got, we talked about what the founders meant when they wrote the Constitution. They really meant for it to constrain government. How can we get it to do that today? You've heard my argument. I think it's by using the plain present public meaning. And then with regard to respecting the Constitution, I mean, there's the tough question. I hope you'll grapple with it, and I hope we can make the Constitution more justified by improving our interpretation of it. Thank you.